Mighty Lord, we come before you needing your grace and your mercy as we hear the word preached, as we go through, O Lord, receiving your word. Let it be that our hearts and minds would be set upon these texts this morning, that we would see how wonderful the family is a model of a little church and how that family is supposed to operate and how parents are to treat their children. We ask, O oh God, that you would give us grace and mercy, that the hearing would be profitable, that the preaching would be profitable, and that you would be with us and that you would minister to us this morning through your word. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going to read Ephesians chapter 5, verse 22, right through chapter 6, verse 9, but we're going to be concentrating on 6, 1 to 4. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, as also Christ is head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word, that he might present her to himself a glorious church not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as the Lord does the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is a great mystery. But I speak concerning Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let each one of you in particular so love his own wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with promise, that it may be well with you, and you may live long on the earth. And you, fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up in the training and admonition of the Lord. Bond servants, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh, with fear and trembling, and sincerity of heart as to Christ, not with eye service, as men pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, with good will doing service, as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that whatever good anyone does, he will receive the same from the Lord, whether he is a slave or free. And you masters do the same things to them, giving up threatening, knowing that your own master also is in heaven, and there is no partiality with him. We're going to look specifically at this point and looking at true biblical reformation and looking at the reformation of the family, how, as we've already seen, how the husband is, the federal head, how the wife is, and now how the husband and the wife in being parents over their children, how that works and what Paul is saying here and what the Holy Spirit had pressed him to pen down. We look at verses 1 to 4. And in 1 to 4, it's said in the context of the edification of the body. Remember, Paul is talking about submitting to one another at church. And from submitting to one another, he then speaks about the family. So the complete context, again, is set in edifying one another in the body of Christ. Submitting to one another before God. And from here, he moves to the Christian family, and it's completed in 6.9, his thoughts on that. 
But the reformation of the family not only consists in the relationship of the husband and wife, but how parents treat their children and how children act to their parents, both one to the other. So we're going to look at these four verses, chapter 6, beginning with verse 1. It says, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Now, who is he addressing? He's addressing now the children in the church. Literally, he's talking about the offspring of the parents. That's what the word actually means. Their children. Those born under authority. He tells them to do something specific. That's the next word, obey. Obey meaning to listen or to hearken unto them. Of one who is on the knock at the door who comes to listen to the door. That's where the word actually comes from. Like the porter of the house, who's always listening to hear the door knock and has a duty to perform the moment he goes and hearkens to it. Children are to obey in that way. Something done to superiors out of obedience to them. And this idea of obeying your parents in the Lord for this is right comprises everything that children are to do. Everything Every kind of obedience that could be rendered to the parents is what the verse is talking about. Paul doesn't yet give specific commands, but that they are to, in general, obey their parents at every command. We used the illustration last week of the husband telling the wife, uh, it was a silly illustration of jumping in the middle of the room. If parents tell their child to go, stand in the middle of the room, and jump once for them, they're to obey. This is the meaning of the verse. Parents are the designated, God-ordained superiors over their children. Because children are bound to their parents, the duties which they perform are not by way of courtesy, but necessity. Their parents have power to command and exact from them everything that the children are to do. And why is it necessary? Because exactly what the verse says, that the children are to obey their parents, how? In the Lord. They are to obey them as if they were obeying Christ himself. Just as the wife does that to the husband, just as the husband does that before Christ himself. It demonstrates a check to the children. A specific course that the children are to take. And an establishment of rules for the child. It's a check showing that children's obedience to their parents is to be restrained to the obedience that they owe to Christ. They are to obey Christ as if their parents were Christ. It's a course. It shows them that obeying their parents, they have to have an eye to looking to Christ. And so they obey them as if Christ was going to approve of all their actions. They should be thinking in that way. And it's an establishment of their duty showing that their parents actually bear the image of Christ before them. They are to see Christ in their parents. And why are they supposed to do all of these things? Well, verse 1 ends by saying, for this is right. The word right, the understanding there is that it's righteous to do so. Righteousness is defined as walking the straight and narrow, walking on the straight line, not going to the left, not going to the right. This is right. It reflects the character of God. This is the way it should be because obedience to parents fulfills the commands of Christ. And the commands 
in particular, the fifth commandment, which Paul is going to talk about next. And so in all the points of the law, in all points of righteousness, it's right to do this. Since parents bear the image of Christ's authority, it's lawful for children to obey them in everything. If they don't obey them, they're rebelling not only against their parents, but against Christ's authority, because Christ placed their parents over them. And it's their duty to obey Christ, thus it's their duty to obey their parents. So look at verse 6-2. It is just and right to obey parents because, what does he say? Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with promise. Now the commandment here comprises under it all the duties which all kinds of inferiors are due to superiors. It's not simply fathers and mothers over their children, but the fifth commandment in all that's annexed to it talks about anybody who is superior having a certain disposition over those who are inferior. This is the fifth commandment that God gave in the Decalogue, which is the first one in the second table of the law. The first four deal with their relationship to God. The last six are their relationship to one another. And it begins, interestingly, that God didn't put, say, murder first, but he put honoring one another first. And it's respect to superiors and inferiors. The Westminster Larger Catechism, in question 124, says, Who are meant by father and mother in the fifth commandment? The answer is, by father and mother in the fifth commandment are meant not only natural parents, but all superiors in age and gifts, and especially such as, by God's ordinance, are over us in place of authority, whether in family, church, or commonwealth. There is a specific order that society must have in order to function correctly. So not only does it have an immediate superiors, but also those annexed to the command. It has implications for all of those relationships. Any superiors or inferiors. And the reason that it's annexed to the fifth commandment that way is because of the promise. It's a very interesting promise that's placed. It's a promise of long life and prosperity. As far as it shall serve for God's glory and their own good, obviously, but there is a promise of long life and prosperity to everyone who keeps the commandment. To keep the commandment is an appeal, interestingly, to temporary prosperity. What the commandment says. How do you talk to children? Children are immature. Children are not as mature as parents are. How do you talk to them? It's interesting that the way that the, this verse in 6.2 places it is that Paul is wise in using not only the duty to be performed, but also a benefit to the duty if they do it. If you do this, I'll give you a cookie. Well, this is a little bit more than a cookie, but this is the idea behind what he's saying, and this is the idea of the way that God has treated the fifth commandment and what he says in the Old Testament to children and how he deals with them. There's a benefit to doing it. Children don't have the capacity just as of yet, while they're still small, to be able to understand why necessarily they must do a duty, although that's to be taught to them, but there is a benefit to the duty. It's something good. God will bless you if you do this. And so look at what he says in verse 3. It's a commentary on the previous statement. 
that it may be well with you and that you may live long on the earth. Isn't that a nice thing? Now, it's interesting that the way that it's said is that it's not said that you'll get to sit under the preaching of the word or that you get to read your Bible every day. He doesn't say that. He says you'll have a long life and God will prosper you. You'll be blessed by God. And what Paul is doing is he's expounding the commandment as it's, ex as it's expounded in Deuteronomy 5.16. Because remember, the commandments are given in Exodus 20, but then they're given again in Deuteronomy. And there in verse 16 it says this, Honor your father and your mother, as the Lord your God has commanded you, that your days may be long, and that it may be well with you in the land which the Lord your God has given you. So Paul takes the command, also adds in the commentary from Deuteronomy to it, and says, this is what children are to do. Now, we have to ask the question, how would this be applicable in the church today? Because here it says in the land which the Lord God has given you, which at that time was the promised land. Does this commandment really count with such a commentary to us today, for children today? Can we say that to children? Um, honor your mother and father that God is going to bless you in the land that he's giving you. Maybe they never will own land. Who knows? But how does the commandment deal with us that way? Well, the land in the Old Testament is shifted to be the church in regards to the covenant community in the New Testament. We're not dealing specifically with land. Let me give you a very clear example of what I mean. Second Chronicles 7.14 is often used as a very abused text to thinking that God is going to prosper America. Listen to what it says. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. So God says that the people turn, that God will bless America. Right? This is how we translate it today, and that is not what the verse says. What it does is it talks about forgiving their sin. Now, who is there? There are his people. He's talking about them, not talking about the disruption that unsaved people have across any given nation. He's talking specifically about his covenant people. And he says, I will forgive their sin and heal their land. And in that shift to us, that is talking about the church. He'll heal our church. Church is a hospital for those who need to be forgiven of their sin. It's a sin hospital. And Christ will forgive us our sin and heal our church. In the same way, that idea, that Old Testament idea of Zion, as we sing in the Psalms all the time, is the church. It's the church that God is talking about. And we could say as much the church in the Old Testament as the New Testament. The church in the Old Testament in comparison to the church in the New Testament is the same church. God's only had one church. He doesn't have eight churches or twelve or seventeen. He has one. And these covenant children are included in this command and have a particular warrant to understand temporary blessing in the home, in the church, and in their surroundings, in the covenant community. Living long, which is the promise, is the substance of the promise, regardless of where they live long, whether it's in the land or in the church. But the circumstance is where they're at, whether they're in Canaan, or whether in the covenant community in the Old Testament or New Testament, it doesn't matter. What matters is, is that 
the commandment in and of itself is annexed to a blessing which applies to all children for all uh, ages at all times. Living long is a temporary, prosperous blessing that God gives them as a result of heeding the command. God is very concerned about little children, as we'll find out. It implies a long life and prosperity in their own inheritance before the covenant members of the church. They will be blessed if they do that. 1 Timothy 4.8 says, For bodily exercise profits a little, but godliness is profitable for all things, having promise of the life that now is, and that which is to come. So there's a blessing that God will give, whether it's spiritual, whether it's physical, whether it's mental. God says that in this temporary life that we live in right now, we will have well-being. Listen to the way Jacob makes his vow in Genesis 28.20. Then Jacob made a vow saying, If God will be with me and keep me in this way that I'm going, and give me bread to eat and clothing so that I can come back to my father's house in peace, that the Lord shall be my God. So Jacob is invoking and vowing before God that if God upholds the end of his promise, in that he will bless according to the commandments, so Jacob will also do the same, and God will be his God. He wants to uphold it. He desires God to uphold it. There is a blessing in this life that God will give children. Now, you might ask, how is long life a blessing? Right? He's going to give them a long life. He'll be blessed before God in that way. How is that a blessing? Maybe people just want to die and go to heaven right now. Wouldn't that be a blessing? Paul says, I'd rather go. But it's better for you that I stay. Well, see, that's part of the idea. Life creates opportunities for God to minister to them, to those children, as well as utilizing them to minister to others. There are things that God accomplishes. God just doesn't decree things from the foundations of the world and stop there. He uses means to those ends. And those means are those children. And it's interesting, is it not, that God is not just concerned with children as children, but the way children grow up. Right? This is a long life. So how long is a long life? Let's say they live to be 100 years old. God is concerned from the very beginning how they will grow up and what they will be as adults later on. How useful they will be. How useful they will be as parents to other children and useful as to adults themselves in the way that God might use them to bless others. Long life involves quite a bit. It certainly appeals to their self-interest, and we'll talk about that a little bit, but God is concerned as to the proper way that these people grow up and how they're taught and how they're nurtured. Long life is a blessing for their own good, even in the way that they're sanctified. The longer that they're here, the more sanctified they'll be. Psalm 34.12 says, Who is the man who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? That's the same idea that Jacob was saying in Genesis 28. The guy who understands this particular verse the children who understand it, they're looking to God to be blessed. They're looking to God to have many days. Even God gave Hezekiah many more days. Remember, after he was sick and he was going to die. God says, I'll add years to your life. Why is that a good thing? Wouldn't it have been just a good thing for Hezekiah to die and go to heaven? Oh, but there's, there's much more to it than that, because sanctification is part of that, and their own good is part of that, and the good of others. Who knows what Paul could accomplish while he was with all of these churches and not had gone to heaven, 
at the time that he did. What could he have done in three more years instead of the time that he had? Who knows? And certainly, long life is a blessing because those children who grow up get to glorify God in a longer capacity on the earth and the blessings and reflect those blessings that God gives them. So, Paul says in Galatians 6.10, Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all, especially to those who are of the household of faith. So, long life is opportunity. That's why Paul says, redeem the time, because the days are evil, and we're going to be talking about that in a couple of weeks, in the manner of utilizing the time the best that we possibly can, because, as the psalmist says, our life is like a vapor, it's a puff of smoke. God so orders his favors as they appear to be true blessings, tending indeed to the good of those upon whom he bestows them. And they are good blessings. God gives good things to us. So the appeal that's annexed to the command is the self-interest of the child who hears this. This is a good thing for you. If you sweep the kitchen, I'll give you a chocolate cake. They understand that. If you obey your parents, God will give you a long life and he will bless you. Now, that is something that is tied to verse 4 because there's a little bit more in simply saying that to the child because that's over a long period of time. The chocolate cake is instantaneous gratification. But this long life is a little bit more work and there are things that are attached to it that are important. Listen to what he says in verse 4. The connection between parents and children is given. And you, fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up in the training and admonition of the Lord. Now, if you want verse 3 to happen, verses 2 and 3, verse 4 has to happen. The parents, though it's specifically stated of fathers because of their federal headship and what Paul had already been talking about in leading the family, they should have, they should have the disposition to take such care of their children as they give them no occasion to be stirred up to wrath. So the parents have to be very wise in the way that they deal with their children. They are not to provoke them. Now again, the parent is the model of stability, or supposed to be the model of stability. And exasperating the child tells us something about the nature of the inward instability of the parent when they do that. Demonstrates their immaturity. The word bring up signifies the idea to feed, where it says bring them up in the training and admonition of the Lord. The idea is to feed them, to feed them in a specific way. Like in Jeremiah 3.15, where God talks about pastors and what they're supposed to do. And I will give you shepherds, which is literally feeders, according to my heart, who will feed you with knowledge and understanding. That's what pastors do. Well, fathers, parents, are to be feeders of their children, in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, or the training and the admonition of the Lord. Because of the lack of maturity in children, parents, who should be much more mature than their children, should be aware of their lack of maturity and know how to deal with them as such. Children are very, very fragile. But you could teach your child on purpose wrong things, and they will believe that those things are true simply because you are the parents and you've taught that to them. Children are much more fragile emotionally, mentally, and they're easily exasperated. That's why the admonition is that way. Nurture means correcting them 
and keeping them on the right path and instructing them. Nurturing them, correcting them, and instructing them. So you have a physical, a mental, and a spiritual well-being that's added up in these words. There are to admonish them in this way, to exhort them. Proverbs 22.6 is the summary of this entire idea of what parents do with children. Train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. That's the summary of this instruction that Paul is giving. A particular path to follow. A particular manner. Not only dutiful as to what they do, but instructed as to how to accomplish it best. God's not looking for children to be slaves, fathers and mothers to tell their children what to do just because they are fathers and mothers and you should do it, but children that are godly seed. That is what God is after. Malachi 2.15, he seeks godly offspring. That is the idea. So you have parents and their relationship to children, children who owe duty to parents and to obey them as if they're obeying Christ in the Lord because the commandment commands them to do it and there's a blessing that's annexed to it, that they'll live long. But fathers have to be very wise in the way that they deal with their children, not to exasperate them, but instead to train them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Those are the verses. Now, I'm not going to spend a long time talking about children and parents. I'm going to talk about parents and their children. I mean, children are to obey and honor their parents as if they were honoring and obeying God. And parents are those authority placed over them. And parents are to be obeyed by necessity. And that's what the commandment teaches. And Paul spends three of the four verses dealing with that. But at the same time, because we don't have many teenagers and many ten-year-olds and nine-year-olds that can understand it here, I want to talk to parents and children. Parents over their children. So here's the doctrine, one of two, in which I want to deal with. It is the duties of parents to their children to nourish them physically, nurture them with correction, and instruct them in the ways of God. That's according to what Paul says in this verse. That's summed up in verse 4. Now, everything that parents do is bound up in the universal command to love. This is what husbands and wives are already doing, and if they love one another in doing that, they're going to love their children. Titus chapter 2 verse 4 says that they admonish the young women to love their husbands and to love their children. So everything that's done is by love. Genesis 22.20, God says to Abraham, Take now your son, your only son Isaac, what? Whom you love. One must always be quick to catch whether they love their children too much and spoil them. That's a little different. But loving them, having a loving disposition, they cannot have a love towards one with a love towards all or show impartiality to children, even if one son or daughter is more obedient than the other. This is a general love that the parents are to have over children. You can't spoil one daughter over a son or love one son more than another. This is the general disposition that parents should have over their children. Genesis 37.4 but when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peaceably to him. So, not only is it not grateful to God to love all of your children, but to love one more than the other 
would be exceedingly wrong because it not only dishonors God who gave all of those children providentially, but would cause immediate dissension in the home. Instead, parents are to love, have a simple love to all of their children based on what God requires of them in nourishing them and nurturing them and admonishing them. Let's talk about nourishing them. Nourish in the verses that we looked at. Teaching and admonishing. There are ideas behind these. That's why I've pulled all three of them out. The ideas behind it is that nourish has to do with the physical well-being of the child. Taking care or nourishing the children, providing things needful for their life and health. If the children are obeying, they're going to have a long life. The parents are obliged to take care of the child. They take care of the child from the time the child is conceived in the womb all the way through and up until they are married and they have left the home. Why was the charge of abstaining from wine, strong drink, and unclean things given to Manoah's wife, but because the child which she conceived was supposed to be healthy and come out a certain way, Judges 13.4. She was given those directions on purpose. Think about the disrepair that women take on their children, even from the womb. The womb today is a, could be a breeding ground of all sorts of trouble. Not only are they in trouble of the knife from the abortion clinic, but crack, drugs, alcohol, excessive nutritionally deficient food, all of those things are, should be upon the mother's mind, and even taking care of the child from the womb. In marriage... The Bible consistently demonstrates the parents' responsibility in finding godly wives and husbands of their children. For instance, Jeremiah 29.6, Take wives and beget sons and daughters, and take wives for your sons and daughters, and give your daughters to husbands, so that they may bear sons and daughters, that you may be increased there and do not be diminished. There's an interest that parents have from the time that the child is conceived in the womb all the way until they're married, even into the kind of manners they have, the parent should be concerned with them. Even good manners. Romans 13, 13. Let us walk properly as in the day, not in revelry and drunkenness, not in lewdness and lust, not in strife and envy. William Gouge, in his work of domestical duty, says this. Rude bringing up makes children to be of a crooked, perverse, stubborn, churlish, surely doggish disposition. As on the other side, good nurture in this kind breeds ingenuity, amiableness, courtesy, and kindness. Which is common sense almost. To that point, if you bring up a child rudely, it's going to grow up to be rudely. If you bring up a child to be courteous and kind, the child will be courteous and kind. Proverbs 22.6 the promise is there. Train up a child in the way he should go. Two parents. Train up a child in the way he should go. And when he's old, he won't depart from it. Otherwise, Proverbs 29.15, the rod and rebuke give wisdom, but a child left to himself brings shame to his mother. That's what will ultimately happen if we're not training them up, not only physically in terms of what we provide for them from the time that they're conceived to the time that they're married and out of the house, but also in the way, even the manners that they have with others. But we're also, as parents to children, to nurture the children with correction. It's wearisome in certain ways in raising them and discipline. We're admonished by Paul 
in uh, Galatians 6, 9, and let us not grow weary while doing good, for in due season we shall reap if we don't lose heart. So there's a weariness in doing good. He knows that. You keep doing good, you keep doing good, it just, and it gets tiring because you don't see exactly what you'd like to see in all of the work that you've done, even in prayer. Prayer is laborious. Over and over and over again, you pray the same thing. That's why Jesus doesn't say that prayer is a bed of roses. He says it's like the persistent widow before the unjust judge. She comes and she's persistent over and over and over and over and over again. And ultimately, the unjust judge gives her her wish. But he admonishes us, saying that the Father in heaven is ready to bless us. And yet, we aren't to grow weary in doing good of any kind. And there are many... Scriptures, just in the book of Proverbs alone, that deal with the way we are to discipline our children. And the reason it's over and over and over and over and over again in that book is because that book is the book of wisdom. And it's the book really in a sense of common sense. In the way that parents are to raise their children, Proverbs says over and over and over, which gives us a clue that it's going to be a difficult thing, and we shouldn't be weary in doing it, but if we train up a child in the way he should go, when he's old, he'll not depart from it. Proverbs 19.18 says, Chasten your son while there is hope, and do not set your heart on his destruction. So if the parent is not setting, or, or not chastening him while there's hope, because there's a time when there won't be hope, certain outcomes will come. Don't set your heart on his destruction. By not chastening him, that's what the parent is doing. Or Proverbs 29.17, correct your son and he will give you rest. Yes, he will give delight to your soul. The fruit of your labor in admonishing and correcting and disciplining your children in the right way is they will ultimately be a delight to you. Proverbs 23.13, do not withhold correction from a child, for if you beat him with a rod, he will not die. Now, there's no getting around it. There's no getting around how often today they want to go in the opposite direction of this. The word beat is the same word as how you utilize taking a stick and hitting the tree branches of an olive tree to get the olives off the branch. That's beating your child. Now, here's the thing. He's not going to die. That's what, that's what, that's the admonition at the end of that. The kid's not going to die. Is he going to have a bruise? Maybe. He's not going to die. Doesn't say anything about bruising. Doesn't say anything about hitting hard. It just talks about you're not going to kill him. Do not withhold correction for a child, for if you beat him with a rod, he won't die. Proverbs is the book of not how to follow up the proper ghost of your child that way. You have to do that. Contrary to the duty of correcting your children, there are two extremes. Too much leniency, and that means that they're going to be spoiled. Or two, too much severity, and that's where our verse says you don't exasperate your child. So you take beat, and you stick that with verse 4 in Ephesians 6.4, and you have a proper balance. You discipline them the right way, but you don't exasperate them. So there's a correction that has to happen according to what God says. But then thirdly, we also have to instruct them in the ways of God. 
A sign of a parent's concern for the welfare of their children is their spiritual disposition to them. Do they pray for them? The promises to you and your children, Acts 2.39 says. How concerned are parents over the spiritual well-being of their children? Parents should pray with great assurance that they may call on God on behalf of their children for his blessing to them. What did God say in the commandment? Their life will be long if they obey. God will bless them. Parents should have a disposition in praying in such a way. God's promise is the ground of faith that parents have. So far as God's promise is extended, so far our faith may and ought to extend itself. We should pray as much as God so promises for our children. And parents should have a desire to pray for God's blessing on them, right? We should. Job, it was his habit to do it. Job 1.5 So it was, when the days of feasting had run their course, that Job would send and sanctify them. And he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, It may be that my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did regularly. Job had a regular disposition on being sure that his children were of a forgiven status, so to speak. That's the way that he took God's blessing, his children. Parents cannot be thinking about the outward state of the children before they're consumed with their inward state. Many times parents are far more concerned about what their children would wear, eat, or their inheritance than they are about whether or not their child is going to spend eternity in heaven or hell. And thus, their spiritual disposition is first and foremost should be on their mind, their primary concern. Even from the very beginning of eight days old. And the only reason God waited until eight days old is because vitamin K starts to be produced in the child at eight days old, and they're able to clot at eight days old, and so that's when they are circumcised at eight days old. God knew that on purpose, and that's why he placed a sign of circumcision on them at that point. Otherwise, it would have been right out of the womb if he hadn't so providentially set it up the other way. He's concerned with the covenant that the child is to make with God and at the proper time. The spiritual disposition right from the womb with some of the children, John the Baptist was filled with the Holy Spirit from, her, from his mother's womb. God was concerned with John from that time. Parents should be concerned about their child and be praying about their child right from conception. The Westminster Confession of Faith in chapter 28 verse 5 says, Although it is a great sin to contempt or neglect this ordinance, and that is placing the covenant sign on the child... Jesus said in Matthew 19, 14, Let the little children come to me and do not hinder them. Why? Why? Because they're unsaved little vipers who have nothing to do with God's covenant and time. No. For to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. Little children are blessed of God. And the little children here, the Greek is, is infants that are brought Jesus says, don't hinder them from coming. The kingdom of heaven belongs to them. They own it as covenant children. So we raise them under the preaching and teaching of the word, and we raise them under the admonition of God in placing the covenant signs on them. And the duty of the federal head, the father and the mother as well, certainly, because it's kind of interesting to me that even though the commandments are, are written specifically to the federal head, 
that even though the father is out at the gates doing his thing, that the mother is spending most of the time with the children, that the mother obviously has a major role in the way that her children are brought up, but it is the duty of the parents to raise up their family like a little church. That's why elders can't be elders unless their families are first in order. Thus, throughout the history of the church, even from the time when they were doing the Passover, they were catechizing the children so that when, when the child says, what mean ye by this? When they're doing the Passover, what do you mean by this? That you can explain to them and say. And so they catechized their children from the very beginning. And that is essential to the spiritual well-being of children. The Reformed faith in its ethical consequences to the family involves their spiritual training. Catechizing children is extremely important so that they know what God requires of them and why God requires of it. The Westminster Directory for Family Worship says, the ordinary duties comprehended under the exercise of piety, which should be in families when they are convened to that effect, are these. This is what you do if you're a family and you have children and you're together. First, prayer and praises performed with a special reference as well to the public condition of the church of God and this kingdom as to the present case of the family and every member thereof. So you pray. You pray for the church. You pray for your family members. You pray together. Next, reading of the scriptures with catechizing in a plain way that the understanding of the simpler may be the better enabled to profit under the public ordinances. In other words, you want children to sit still in church and teach them what it's about at home. You want them to understand preaching? You don't want them to be bored in church? Then help them and un- help them to understand at home. Help them to do it, and they made more capable to understand the scriptures when they read them. So you teach your children so that they can read the Bible, so they can understand when you're praying what you're talking about. So when they're sitting in church and the preacher is preaching, they know what he's preaching about, that they understand the basics, that they say, what is sin? And the answer Is any want of conformity to or transgression of the law of God? And teach them what that means so that they understand when the preacher's talking about sin that it's their relationship with God that they're talking about. In the family, a parent is all and all over his child. A king, a priest, and a prophet. Therefore, that which a minister is to do for the matter of the instruction of the church As William Gouge says, a parent must be doing at home. Isaiah 28.10 For precept must be upon precept, precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line, here a little, there a little. We don't say, here's the Bible, know it all tomorrow. It's here a little, there a little, line upon line, precept upon precept. As they learn, as they grow, as they mature, the parent has in their best interest, their well-being, both physically, emotionally, mentally, and spiritually, as God's ordained superior authority over them in all of these ways. I want to apply this to us. Christian parents have the responsibility before God to raise godly children, not to drive them further away from God. Godly parents will do that. You have to understand exactly what Proverbs says concerning training up a child now while there's hope. Training up a child now 
while there's hope because there's a point where that stops and becomes no more hope. Our job as parents or even as extended parents, as we have leave to have impact on children around us, is to create and influence children to be what God desires, godly seeds. You know, we should have a keen interest in raising children in a godly manner, but because of the fall, you know, it's easy to get upset with them. They just don't listen over and over and over again. We laugh at Bill Cosby and his ditty on my wife used to be a beautiful woman and then we had children kind of thing and going through what the children are doing and they're upstairs and they're yelling, mine, mine, stop touching me and all of these different things. Yet, we have to think about not one, exasperating the child and two, doing it in such a behavior that we're actually coming up with a fruitfulness to it that we're really raising godly seeds as a result. I mean, we can laugh at Bill Cosby because we look back and we say all those things sort of happened that way. But at the same time, we have to ask what kind of impact we actually have on the children that are around us. That's why God is so concerned with orphans through the Bible. Children are very important. They're the future. They're the future of the church. They're the future of society. They're going to be the future presidents. I don't want to see the next president of the United States wearing his pants under his butt like most of the children do today. There's an impact that we have on our children. Malachi 3.5 says, And I will come near you for judgment, and I will be swift against sorcerers, against adulterers, against perjurers, against those who exploit wage earners, and against widows and orphans. God's very concerned even about the children who are left out in the cold. James 1.27 says, Pure and undefiled religion before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their trouble and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. He takes great pains to talk about children. And he's very concerned with children. Children are little mimics. They're going to do what they see you do. And they're always apt to do more sin if they see you do that than righteousness because they have to be taught that way. Abraham lies about Sarah as his wife. What did Isaac do? Isaac lied about his wife. Exactly what Abraham did. Father see, father do. You know, monkey see, monkey do. That's what they did. A parent's responsibility then is first before God is a good example, before God to raise children the right way and in a way that honors God, but they have to be good examples. They have to be doing what they want their children to do. So you've got to demonstrate the righteous character of Christ before your children. To your children, the way you live, walk, talk, act, sit, sleep, eat, pray, all of those things. If you're upset all the time and angry all the time, your children are going to be that way. They're going to do what you do. And they see it. If you don't have devotions, and that's not important, they're not going to have devotions. If you don't pray, they're not going to pray. You as a parent have a choice whether or not to honor God in the way you raise your children to reject God's plan for godly seed or to raise them after your own image. The lazy image, the unrighteous image, the fallen image. They're going to go one way or the other. They're either going to follow Christ in you, or they're going to follow you. Either we're made continually into the image of Adam, or we're made into the image of Christ, one way or the other. 
Now, I don't mean that we're made as informed in the womb that way, but as refers to the way we influence our children or are influenced. Fallen men and women continue to create beastly children who follow their example and their moral stature. We have to already be conscious of the fact that we're fallen, so we have to go get fixed by Christ. And then we have to demonstrate that fixedness to our children in the right way. Otherwise, they just see our fallenness. And it's, remember, easy for a fallen child to follow fallenness when they're not as mature as you are, when they don't understand the Bible like you do, when they can't think like you do, when they're not as mature as they have those things move through their minds, they're going to see what's easy. It's easier not to pray than to pray. God set a certain temperament and rule for parents to raise children so that they're trained up in the way that they should go or the way that they should not go. I mean, you have to understand that every family is dysfunctional. There is no functional family on the face of the planet, nor has ever been except before the fall, and that only lasted a little while just between husband and wife. Now, every family is dysfunctional. That's where Christ comes in, and we rely on Christ to help us get over the dysfunctionality of our family. Otherwise, if we let them go as to the way that they would like to go, they'll become as Cain or Lamech or Jezebel or all of those wicked people without godly checks. Oftentimes, through our own society, it's that children are raising children. Children, they don't know any better. You see these parents, the wacky parents. Let their children do anything they want. They're children raising children. Instead, though, children are supposed to be raised by physically, mentally, and spiritually mature parents who have a desire to fulfill God's mandate for them on what God expects children to be and what their relationship should be to parents. So your first response as parents is to ask what God expects of you as a parent, not what feels or seems good to what you'd like to do, because Christian parents aren't supposed to follow the trends of the world. They're supposed to follow what God has in the Word, and they should be looking to the time-tested precepts of the Word to raise their children. That's where the authority lies, right? The children are supposed to be obeying the parents how? As to the Lord, in the Lord, for this is right. It doesn't lie in yourself. It lies in your transmission of God's precepts to your children. As parents, you're really required, sorry to say, to be really good biblical counselors and really good theologians and really good biblical expositors. That's what parents are supposed to be. That means that when you're raising children, you're a student of the psyche. You're a student of how they think. You're a student as a counselor who knows how to bring together biblical wisdom with a calm, cool, and collected attitude towards your children so that you teach them wisely. We hear of the terrible twos or the spoiled four-year-old or the teenage rebel. But the scriptures don't lie to us. God's not lying to us when he says, train up a child in the way he should go, and maybe he'll follow your lead. No. If you train up a child in the right way, he will never depart from what you teach him. There are stories after stories after stories. As the habitual morning devotion of the family happens, the child leaves and goes out and can't not do it, just for the sake of constancy, because he's been doing it all of his life. It presupposes a right way and a wrong way to train up a child. And that's the ultimate point of that proverb. There's a right way and there's a wrong way. That's why Paul says to the father, they ought not to exasperate their children. That's the wrong way in training them up. They should know how to deal with them. They have to be useful adults. You have to train them to be useful. Are you training them up? 
nourishing them, nurturing them, and disciplining them in the right way. Right, wrong, and differently by the standards of the world, how is it being done? Is the child training you up? Because that's really what's happening if you exasperate your child. He's working you. Without young children, it can be in certain ways how to discern how well, for example, catechizing is going because they are young, they are immature, they haven't gotten to the point where they're gaining things. But to use Zoe as an example, when we sit at the dinner table and we pray, she puts her hand, she closes her eyes, she's ready to go. She doesn't necessarily understand everything that's going into that, but she's mimicking what she sees and what they've taught her. The reformation of the child is key to change them from being fallen, like their father Adam, to being godly seeds. And so, as parents, even extended parents in any way, we're bound to disciple them, to nourish them, and train them for their good. When they're loose and undisciplined, that's just simply saying another way of driving them away from God. That's what's happening. Raise up your children without biblical instruction, and God may give you the wish of allowing them to freely run into the world. That's where they're going. Dr. Spock, Dr. Phil, Oprah, you know, these guys are not trusted people for raising up children. New age techniques will never replace continued supervision and spanking, ever. And giving your children over to anything not commanded of you in Scripture for their well-being is never going to be something that's going to be blessed by God. Children are under your God-given authority. Don't let them win the battle. I heard mother say, when I count to three, if you have not done it, you're going to get spanked. One, two, two and a half. Right? They're already, they're, she's already bartering with a child. No, no. Children are to obey without excuse. They're to obey Without delay. They were to obey in a specific manner. The child has won once the mother starts bartering. They should obey always without challenge. They should obey always without excuse. And they should obey always without delay. And you know, you can get kids to that point. Proverbs 23.13, again, do not withhold correction from a child. That means that you as a parent regulate your child's character. You're the regulator. And you use godly discipline to do that. That doesn't make daddy a monster when he disciplines his children every ten seconds. It makes him godly. Father came home and his child was sitting there and he came home with a, a business uh, executive and he wanted his son to come over and his son was like five years old. And he sat him on his knee and he held up the chalkboard and he wrote on it ABC. He says, say your ABCs with me. And the child says, no. Got up, brought him in the bathroom, spanked him, came back. Wrote it again. Say your ABCs. No. Got up, brought him in the back, spanked him, came back. Say your ABCs. No. Got up, brought him in the back, spanked him, came back. Say your ABCs. Shook his head, closed his mouth. Got up. Okay. A. B. The parent has to win. If the child wins, the child wins. And then there's a certain point where there is no more hope, and then the parents are actually setting their heart on the child's destruction. The child can't win. It's a 24-7, for those who have children, a 24-7 job. In the little book of Christian character and manners, 
there's a wonderful list in the back that are warning signs for parents who don't have authority in their home or a signal that they're losing that authority in their home. I'm going to read a few of them. I know our time is close to being at the end, but let me read a few of these. My child whines, cries, and pouts when I say no to him. I find myself reluctant to ask my child to help with any tasks because of his negative reaction and inability to complete on a job. He usually responds to my request by whining or answers, I can't or I don't want to. There is an excessive amount of noise and confusion in my house, screaming, bickering, crying, hitting, rough behavior with furniture or toys. I'm unable to leave food snacks or anything of personal value within my child's reach. I am unable to leave my child, aged three or above, out of my sight or unattended in another room for any period of time without being worried about what he or she is up to. I am embarrassed or afraid to take my child to other homes or restaurants because he's so active, boisterous, silly, fidgety, he knocks things over and touches everything. My child is unable to sit quietly for any length of time in a place that I specify. Going shopping is a fiasco because my children run through the clothes racks or touch everything in the store or run away from me. My child has a, quote, smart mouth, yells, uses abusive language, swears at me or hits me. My child throws tantrums, refuses to eat or does what he is, or, or, or to do what he is asked to do. My child takes things without asking and rummages through our drawers and cupboards. My child does not come when called or respond to my voice from another room. When I ask my child to do something, I always have to explain why first. Many of my child's toys are broken and he rarely puts anything away, outdoors or indoors. My child avoids doing what I ask by using flattering words, changing the subject or doing some other good deed instead. My child gets my attention with loud, disrespectful demands. Hey, Mom, get that for me. I want this. Or, Mom, come here. I find myself saying, I can't do that because Susie won't let me. Or, I can't get Johnny to do it. When I spank my child, he pouts, responds in anger, screams, throws himself on the floor, slams doors, belongs his crying, coughs or gags and attempts to vomit. As I talk on the phone or chat with others, my child constantly interrupts or acts naughty, demanding my attention. My child is constantly bored, discontent, and looking for entertainment, wanting to play. He grumbles at his work. I'm ready to pull my hair out. My child drives me crazy. I'm so worn out all the time that I can hardly wait to get a break from him at any moment or opportunity. Now, on all of those, how sharp is your scripture memory? Could you think of a verse dealing with each one of those above? These are examples of poor character qualities that the Bible, especially Proverbs, addresses specifically. So we have to be warned, on the one hand, though we are to be godly parents, and though we are to follow through with everything that God has given us to be parents over the children, yet we're never to crush them, we're never to smother their spirit, and we're never to act overly harsh, we're never to exasperate them. Your children are immature. However, as we follow through God's plan for the relationship between parents and children, God will bless our work. And as the child obeys, they will be blessed by God. They will in turn affect the home. They'll affect church and society in ways that you raise them. That's how important being a parent is. And that's why Paul has taken so many verses and talking about the edification of the church to deal with husbands and wives and now children and parents. And the next time, we'll talk about 
masters and slaves and talking about work. Let's pray that God would aid us in the most difficult task of raising children, even orphans, even extended children. This applies to grandparents. It applies to uncles and aunts. It applies to uh, all of those who have superiors and inferiors, which is the context of this passage. So let's pray together and be reminded about what God has told us concerning parents over their children. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for so much that your scriptures talk about concerning parents and children. We certainly could, O Lord, have weeks of study on the various facets of all of these different things, but as we're talking about true biblical reformation and we're reaching down into the family, the husband is to be a certain way, the wife a certain way, and parents over their children a certain way, that that you might reap through us godly seed. And we so pray that these things, O Lord, would come to pass, that we would do it according to your will, and that you would bless not only our families, but also the children, that they may have a long life here, temporarily, and all the opportunities you give them to be sanctified and affected, and also to affect others for the good of church, family, and society. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D, M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they 
to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.